This week on Life and Faith. If there's one way of summarizing life with this uh, wonderful, complex, uh, hard and soft man, John Stevens, he's John Frederick Stevens III. I was very nearly John Frederick Stevens IV. On any count, Paul is one of the most significant human beings who ever lived. It's a mystery even in science, so why wouldn't people be open to other mysteries? In some ways, the drive is even stronger in people that have had difficult childhoods. I'd recommend it to anybody. Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. It's good to have your company. At CPX, each year we do a public lecture, the Richard Johnson Lecture. And like last year, unsurprisingly, it's all online again this time. And giving the lecture, I'm very glad to say, will be Scott Stevens. Scott is ABC's Religion and Ethics online editor and co-host with Walid Ali of The Minefield on ABC Radio National. His lecture this year is titled out of sight, attentiveness in a dismissive age. This is going to be really good. It's on October 28, and you can get details and buy your tickets at our website, publicchristianity.org. So this week, I'm really glad to be replaying an interview we did with Scott a few years ago. And in this conversation Justine and I had with Scott, we heard a lot about his fascinating and fairly unusual growing up, and the impact that had on him, on his faith, and on his sense of calling into the work he now does. I think you'll really enjoy this as a warm-up to the Richard Johnson Lecture. We began by focusing on Scott's childhood. Born and raised in Cincinnati in the US, sometime spent in New England and New Orleans, and then the Solomon Islands. Here's Scott to tell us about that. Well, I was born in Cincinnati, which is um, really kind of good old-fashioned Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern of the US, industrial country. Cincinnati is quite a strange, largely industrial, uh, quite poor city, Um, but didn't spend a great deal of time there. We were only there for about two years, I think, while my father was working at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, Then we had a little bit of time in uh, New England, a little bit of time in North Carolina. But then most of the time in the U.S. was actually spent in Louisiana. I don't don't know if anybody's sort of watched the first season of True Detective, but True Detective was shot where I grew up. Get out. That is even more exciting than I thought. (laughs) Wow, yes. Talk about a show that perfectly captured something of the... And there's actually something quite sort of gruesome about Louisiana. It's, uh, it's moist, it's flat, but it also it represents this strange mixture of faith, uh, of various forms of kind of strange religious uh, syncretisms and, and, and immixtures, uh, a tremendous amount of kind of inbred um, nepotism. I mean, really, just a very strange place. It seemed to me, you can tell I don't want to talk about my life. Let's talk about True Detective. <laughs> I mean, that first season really captured, I think, the complexity of the place. But I think what this little itinerary around the U.S., and we then went from, the Solomon, uh, from uh, Louisiana to the Solomon Islands, what that really reflects is my father's nomadic nature. I mean, we grew up effectively without a home. Yeah, well, tell us about that, Scott. Mm. What, what was your family like and what was family life like for you? Um, well, I began life as the youngest of five children. Uh, m- uh, my father's a professionally driven uh, man, quite a brilliant mechanical engineer, uh, quite a hard man as well in, in, in many ways. And yet in the final portion of his, uh, of his doctoral studies, he ended up fostering uh, six children as a single man. Then when he and my mother were married, they adopted four of them, 
which I mean already is actually quite remarkable. There is a sort of generosity there about him. And uh, he said he was a bit of a hard man. Tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, I'm, I mean, good in many respects, good Presbyterian stock. Uh, he's he's a true blue constitutional American. Uh, the, the the Stevens go right back to the signers of the Constitution. Um, so you know, there's something kind of deeply and recognizably uh, traditionalist about him. But I think one of the things that really always struck me is a fundamental lack of trust. Uh, he didn't trust institutions. He didn't trust governments. I mean, we often see that within American life. But what was interesting about my father uh, is a lack of trust in any institution outside of family. There's something very individualistic about his relationship with God, for instance. He did not trust the church. He could not trust the church. Uh, he didn't trust public schools, would not trust public schools. So the strange thing, I suppose, that dominates kind of the first 15 years of my life was absolute isolation. There was our family and there was nothing else. My parents homeschooled me and much of the time didn't even use a recognizable curriculum. There was a real sense of protection. They wanted to shield their children from the insidious influences out there. And the best way of doing that was for the family to become our church, for the home to become school. Yeah, and it was it was a strange way, I suppose, to kind of grow up. What was your mother like in the mix of this? Because you've described your father as a hard man. Was your uh, your mother similarly hard as well? Um, uh, my dad's very exacting, very demanding. One of the real problems with growing up in that kind of relationship is the line between uh, father, son, parent, teacher became very blurred. I could never get math. I just could not understand math, and math is his world. He lives and breathes it. Uh, so he would get really angry at me when I couldn't understand things and school discipline very quickly became kind of physical punishment. Um, that, that's what I mean by him being a hard man. My mother, she resonates with me more than anybody else in this world. Uh, she was a, an anthropology major at, George, at Georgetown University. Uh, she was a VW driving hippie. My dad's a Republican. She's a Democrat. He was a Nixon man. She was a Kennedy woman. They were very, very different. They were bound together, though, uh, in their devotion to their family and their deep, deep love for one another. But it often seemed to me that my mom's job was to nurture things that my father couldn't. I, I would even say encourage a kind of mysticism in us, encourage an openness to life and the world and literature and poetry. I mean, the things that she had me reading from the time I was very, very young to nurture this kind of rich and full openness to the experience of God uh, um, was more important to me than anything else. So she was the opposite to him in many respects. She's very open and attentive, very aware. When she was with you, she is absolutely with you. Uh, one of these people that makes you feel as though that, you know, you're the center of the universe. I have to admit hearing you talk about this, that I can't get Terence Malick's The Tree of Life yes. out of my mind. Yes. You know, you've got your father, the disciplinarian, the way of nature, mm. and you've got the mother, the mm. way of grace. You got that exactly right. That's one of the reasons I have a very hard time watching Tree of Life. Mm. That seems almost, um, it's a very unexpected thing, that sort of openness to literature and other things that your mum brought you. Mm. Uh, when you started to talk about your dad and the sort of the family being the centre of the, the whole thing and the, the extent of your life in some ways, those two things don't normally go together. Is that openness what saved you in some ways? Uh, no, strangely enough. I mean, my mum has given me more than I could ever repay, just in terms of nurturing things that have resonated deeply with my soul. I have to say, though, Simon, I owe my father the world. I mean, this, this sounds kind of bizarre and a little bit pathetic, but I, I'm, I'm a lifelong opponent of homeschooling. 
Um, I mean, there's something about the socializing experience of school. There's something about this, you know, the school also being a school of friendship and in which you learn certain social capabilities mm. and certain virtues. Which you missed, you missed out. Absolutely. I mean, I'm incredibly socially awkward. I stuttered. As, as a young man, I stuttered compulsively. But what my father did is he conveyed an unwavering sense of self-reliance. So he would give me a book and say, read the following 20 pages, do the exercises tonight, I'll check them in the morning, or I'll check them later that night. And what it, what, what it meant, and this has actually set me in pretty good stead for the rest of my life, if I don't understand something, well, tough luck. You just keep reading and reading and reading and reading until you get it. So most things that I've ended up doing in my life, um, I've had the benefit of wonderful education, but most things that I've done have been on the back of being a bit of an autodidact. You just keep teaching yourself. Uh, so it's that, it's that reliance on oneself that he has probably gifted me with more than anything else. So, I mean, look, I, I have a tremendous affection for my father. He's a hard man, but a wonderful man. Uh, but it's that refusal to wait for anybody else to do it for you. Uh, that has um, that's been really important to me. Scott, uh, you mentioned before that your family went to the Solomon Islands because your father was nomadic and you didn't have a home. Talk us through how that happened, that your life was uprooted from the States and sent to the Pacific. Yep. Uh, you made reference to the Tree of Life before. Uh, let me make reference to another film. If you want to understand what happened when at the height of his career, he was university professor of mechanical engineering at University of Southwestern Louisiana. He was one of the top robotics researchers and innovators in the United States, uh, a man in extraordinary demand. And uh, one day in 1988... Uh, he picked up the family and he said, I think God wants us to go visit the Solomon Islands. And we flew over and we spent two weeks there and it was strange and it was weird. It was a little bit wonderful. Uh, he came back, worked for another 18 months, and then we sold everything. Now, selling everything wasn't a big deal because he never took out a loan. All of his savings were in little gold coins in a tin box under the bed. Uh, he didn't trust Banks, Banks either. Yep. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, but his great concern, the film I wanted to make reference to is Mosquito Coast. Mm. He was convinced that America was teetering on the brink of catastrophe. That was one of the reasons he refused to ever have too many encumbering ties with institutions or banks or, or in anything else. So he was convinced that the Solomon Islands would be a safe haven for the family. So much of it was a kind of missionary desire to go, and he taught in a Church of Melanesia school there. He and my mother both taught there. But the great underlying motive was to pick up the family, to take them someplace safe so that they could weather the storm that was going to come. And we should also mention that this is perhaps one of those stories that we can't tell, even though your, 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 your whole backstory is full of these. Your father spent time with the CIA in biological warfare, and that it sounds like, was also influencing his decision to sort of uproot the family? Uh, it certainly fed into his paranoia. I mean, the stories that we heard growing up about who really killed JFK. <laughs> I, mean, that was, I mean, he was there. He was there when it happened. So he was one of those very lucky, slightly upper-class uh, draftees who, instead of being shipped off as a grunt to Vietnam, he was drafted directly into the CIA to work in uh, international intelligence, some espionage. But his main thing, his main area of research was the way in which mosquitoes can be utilized for biological warfare. I can't So even... you went somewhere where there's lots of mosquitoes, presumably. <laughs> where, 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 where mosquitoes are the predominant form of bird life, yeah. yeah. Now, Scott, um, I want to ask you about the picture you received as a child 
of God. What was the, the, the character of God like for you as a kid growing up? Mm, mm. That's, I've never been asked that question, Simon. Wonderful. Uh, it was complex. I, as a child, I had a, a massively hyperactive conscience. My parents never had to worry about catching me out in anything because if I did something wrong, the clock was ticking and I would confess all. Um, And that really did reflect my idea of God as well. Uh, Not just that I was afraid that God was looking over my shoulder and wanted to punish me. It was more, you want to live with clear conscience. You want to be able to stand before God with as clear conscience and as pure a soul as as one can. And I think that idea of purity was always a very, very important one growing up. In a sinful age, we needed to keep ourselves pure. The other side of it was, it's not just that God wants us to be pure pure. But it's also there is a deep sense of vocation, that God wants us to be a particular way because he's calling us to do a particular thing. I was never frightened. God was never a fearful image for me, um, despite whatever kind of fear I might have had from my father. Um, But it was more a great desire to please, maybe an overactive desire to please. Looking back, I probably had nothing like a robust enough understanding of grace and mercy. But what what it did provide was a tremendous sense of vocation, that we are in this world called to do something. And so, I mean, if there's one verse that summed up my entire childhood, you are not your own, you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. So that really probably reflects just about everything uh, there was to know for me about you know what it meant to live in a universe superintended by God. It's a temptation not to pop psychologize it and say that, you know, your father created a portrait of a particular kind of God and then you were swept up by the God of grace. That's to put, impose too neat a frame over it, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Uh, because I've never, um, I've never seen the availability uh, of mercy. I've never seen the tremendous comfort of grace as being in some way opposed to or relief from the exacting God. I mean, you know, this, this really goes back to a very Christian understanding for me of what freedom is. I mean, freedom isn't the ability to do what one wants. Freedom is the ability to do what is best. Freedom, in its deepest Christian sense, is the inability to sin. And so I think for me, you know, what I, what I suppose I always yearned for, what I always pursued, was the ability to be holy without knowing that I was holy. And that really reflects the sort of stuff that my mum gave us to read. People like Archbishop Fenlon, people like uh, Madame Guillon, like uh, Oswald Chambers, like uh, A.W. Tozer. Oh my gosh, I haven't thought about these names for ages. I mean, there's something about what they taught that, yes, God wants purity, but he doesn't want purity that knows that it's pure. He wants purity that's so caught up with the goodness and the grace of God that it simply gets about doing the task that's been set before it. So, you know, I, I know that sort of in popular culture today, we see these things as being dramatically opposed. There's either forgiveness or there's, you know, heavy restrictions. I don't, I, I don't see them. I've never seen them as being opposed. Rather, grace is that wonderful gift that gives us the ability to be what God wants us to be. This is Life and Faith, and we're bringing you an interview we did a few years ago with Scott Stevens, ABC's online editor of their religion and ethics site, also an author and a speaker and radio host. I just noted with Scott that the path from Cincinnati through New England and New Orleans and then the Solomon Islands was really unusual and quite the journey. 
It really was. Uh, and in fact, if there's one way of kind of summarizing life with this uh, wonderful, complex, uh, hard and soft man, John Stevens. He's John Frederick Stevens III. I was very nearly John Frederick Stevens IV. I'm that very actually, disappointed that you're me, not. Me, me too. That, is, that actually says quite a lot about his relationship to sort of heritage. Uh, but if there's, if there's one way of kind of grasping uh, this man in church, uh, my father was known as Old Testament John. I can't remember ever seeing him read from the New Testament, except from the book of James. He spent his life in the Old Testament, which was wonderful. It means that I know far more about the Old Testament than was probably good for me. Uh, but it also meant that you know my father's understanding of what it means to live purely was very much shaped by the Old Testament. So dietary restrictions we followed. I was circumcised on the eighth day. Your listeners probably don't need to know that. That, that was very, very much. And there's also something very, how can I put this, prophetic about my father's view of God. So this was the God who also condemned sinful nations to imminent disaster. And that was one of the reasons uh, that he felt the need to pick up the family and uh, take us elsewhere to find a, a haven from the catastrophe that was going to come. Yeah, so you, your family moved from Louisiana mm. to the Solomon Islands. How old were you then? And that must have been a incredible shift for a young uh, American boy. Yeah, I, I actually, believe it or not, I never really thought of myself and still don't even now thought of myself as, as American. We lived in a way that was very sort of, that was quite unrecognizable, if I can put it like, like that. But I was uh, just turned 15 uh, when we moved to the Solomon Islands. Uh, I was massively accelerated in my schooling. So when we got there, uh, I, I mean, I'd already done my collegiate testing. I'd already gained university entrance as a very young man. And so it was just to kind of cap off uh, just a little bit of schooling there in the Solomons uh, before then moving to Australia when I had just turned 17. What brought you here? Uh, we met some quite extraordinary uh, Church of England missionaries. We met them and I just, I mean, this probably reflected a little bit of my isolation. I just hadn't met that many interesting people in my life. But I thought these people were fabulous. I mean, there was something that was both biblically rich, but that was pastorally compelling about them. My father wanted me to return to the U.S. and to study mechanical engineering, but dad, I don't understand science. <laughs> And my mom is sort of, you know, behind the scenes, you know, God is calling you into ministry. God is calling you into ministry. So I knew there was something probably a little bit Jonah-like about it. He wanted me to go east. I decided to go west. He wanted me to do <laughs> engineering. I decided to do theology. Uh, so, um, so it really was the prospect of coming here, of not returning to the U.S. I never wanted to return to the U.S., uh, of coming here and uh, studying as much as I possibly could about the scriptures. So, Scott... You talked about the picture of God that you received as a child. Now, for all of us, uh, that character or that image sort of develops, sometimes shifts, changes mm. uh, as we grow older. In what way did that happen for you? Um, it really is, I think, by retrospect uh, that you really understand what was going on. Uh, but a, a lot of this comes from my mum. I've always loved languages. I'm, I'm one of those geeks that never, ever, ever reads an unabridged novel. As soon as I read an abridged book, I think someone's screwing me. What am I, what am I missing out on? I want to know everything. I'm one of those idiots that reads all of the footnotes because I don't, I, I feel like there's something lurking there. So for, for that reason, the thing that I really desperately, truly wanted to study were biblical languages. This is probably a bit of my father coming out. I didn't trust translations. And so I wanted to get it from the horse's mouth, as it were. Uh, so, uh, and one of the wonderful, truly glorious things about 
about Moore College, uh, is that you could study as much biblical language and as deeply as you wanted to. So I did three years of Greek and Hebrew. I took every Greek and Hebrew supplement that I possibly could. I did all of my exams, not with the translation, but using the first part of the exam to translate the text and to use the critical apparatus. I mean, I, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And it really was uh, Hebrew and the Old Testament that I fell in love with most. One of the reasons was that there I was discovering a world that I didn't know existed. There was something in many respects, yes, terrifying, something rather exacting about the Old Testament world that I'd grown up with. But there was something that I was discovering that I just found captivating. And it really was in the figures like Isaiah and Hosea and Micah. Uh, later on in Leviticus, believe it or not, and in Exodus. I mean, there was something there. There was a kind of richness in mercy there that I had never even thought about. But richness, not as something that kind of attenuates or that counters or that tempers justice or holiness, but mercy, which is its truest manifestation. It's not what many people think of when they think of the Old Testament, is it? They, they tend to think of the Old Testament as very judgmental, and then the New Testament, you get to the lovely bits. Mm. But the, the, the Old Testament is shot through with mercy and grace, isn't it not? There was a conversion moment for me. I mean, it really was just that. So I remember vividly coming across a book called Justice, Holiness, and Politics in the Teachings of Jesus. And I remember sitting in the corner reading this book, and he was talking about the way in which Jesus, in Luke uh, 6.36, takes these two commands of the Old Testament. On the one hand, Leviticus 17.2. You can tell that this lives with me. I mean, I think about this almost every day. Leviticus 17.2, you shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. That was the motto of my early life. I mean, that was, we were, that was drummed into us. And then he, he said, look at the way that Jesus takes that and combines it with Hosea 6.6. 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then look what Jesus does with that. In Luke 6.36, you shall be merciful as your Father in heaven is merciful. And then that just began cracking things open for me. I began watching the ways as I poured back over again and again the Gospels. The way that at those very moments that you would expect Jesus to be contaminated by sin or to be affected by the uncleanness of others. Jesus isn't contaminated. Instead, his holiness rubs off on others. I mean, that was a transformative moment for me. You know, I'd grown up terrified that the world was going to rub off. And that did lead to a bit of fearfulness, not of judgment, but that I was going to screw up this vocation, that I wasn't going to be worthy of it. But at that moment, realizing that holiness's true expression is in self-giving, life-giving, outpouring, infectious mercy that doesn't get contaminated by what's out there, but transforms what's out there. That changed everything for me. It revolutionized the way that I looked at the world. Uh, it also torpedoed my plans of a future career simply studying the Old Testament. I mean, that was what I was going to end up doing. Hence, we don't have to call you Old Testament, Old Testament Scott. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, Scott, how does the, um, the position of being editor of ABC Religion and Ethics fall into this path that wasn't a path? You know, until you just kind of what, you just find your way toward it? Or? I came to this position uh, after uh, five rather unhappy years in parish ministry within the Uniting Church. That's a long story that uh, I don't particularly want to get into, and the Uniting Church would certainly not like me to get into. Um, it was during a period of real discernment where my wife and I were trying to work out, dear God, what next? You know, what do we do? 
that an invitation came to apply for this extraordinary position. Um, and at, at you know, the early stage, it was simply being a kind of umpire, being a sort of traffic cop for the ABC's already existing religion content, whether it be the radio or the news stories that are derived from other sources. It was just going to become a kind of one-stop shop if you wanted to read everything that the ABC had to say about religion. I found that a pretty uninteresting prospect. I thought the ABC had far more social capital and social clout in the world. I thought they could afford to do something that was a bit more robust and theologically serious. So in my interview, I told them exactly that. And thus was the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful friendship. And I'm, look, I'm, I'm tremendously grateful to the ABC for taking a huge risk and in doing what no other public broadcaster in this world is willing to do and what very few other commercial ventures are prepared to do, which is to take not just the, the, the usual suspects, the mercenaries and the self-promoters and the you know, op-ed writers for hire, but to take the best. Uh, to take the very best theological figures in this world and to make them publicly and freely available. So, so for me, I mean, this is, this is the fulfillment of, of a life dream. Uh, it's bringing the best and most wonderful forms of religious belief into public in the assurance that great theology isn't going to be sullied by being in the public sphere. That doesn't have to be protected. It can put up its own dukes and it can fight its way through. It can convince and it can win over hearts. And that for me, just to go back to what we were saying before, that's mercy in action. Scott, it is important for us to note though that you know, ABC Religion and Ethics is not a Christian website and it's not even a Christian-dominated website mm. as well. You throw open the stage to people who are dwelling on and thinking about these big theological questions, but from different traditions. Absolutely. And, and look, that I think, you know, there, there is something kind of uh, frightened, I often feel, about the way that a lot of Christians uh, approach the public square. They often think that, you know, Christians have a particular dog in this fight, and therefore they've got to be another one of those ideological warriors out there trying to win their case, trying to prove their point. You know, they have to be one of the kind of table-thumping panelists on Q&A, for instance, just to make sure that the, you know, the atheists at the other end of the, of the thing don't get the final word. That, for me, is a kind of betrayal of the Christian vocation. Uh, and if my understanding of mercy were otherwise than what it is, then I think I might myself tend to be a bit more fearful. But for me, one of the great joys, one of the revelations, has been having tremendous Muslim theologians, for instance. I think of someone like Tariq Ramadan or uh, Khaled Abu al-Fadl or, or uh, uh, Muhammad al-Yakubi. I mean, these are men of extraordinary, undeniable holiness, profundity, theological precision. And I think one of the things that's really exciting to me, the ABC Religion Ethics is not Christian. It's not even predominantly Christian. It is a radically hospitable place for the best expressions of life and faith and the pursuit of God and the wonder of what does it mean to live in a holy fashion in a world like ours uh, can get some expression. I should also say, Justine, I run this weekly uh, radio program with a devout Muslim in Walid Ali. If we just talk talked about Christianity and Islam, we would probably disagree rather a lot. But as soon as we begin talking about another issue, we find Christianity and Islam getting closer and closer and closer together. And then we discover points of agreement. One of the things I try to do on the Religion and Ethics website is to model what would robust interreligious exchange look like that's not self-defensive and that's not trying to just win the argument. So Scott, as you've um, moved to a very different environment to the one you grew up in, you've raised your own family, what are the things that you took with you and brought into your own family and what are the things that you sort of left behind consciously? What a wonderful question. First and most obviously, I'm, I'm a softie. 
I mean, uh, unencourageable softy. Uh, I got that impression. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and look, I, I would like to say that that was a, a very adult decision and it was a balanced decision. It probably wasn't. I mean, one of the, uh, I love my father dearly, but I grew up with a tremendous sense that it was never good enough. Whatever I did was never good enough. I gush over my children. Uh, and uh, yeah, I need to be careful of the imbalances with, with that as well. Uh, but for, for me, um, one of the most important things for a parent to pass on to one's child is the absolute convincedness. You are utterly and completely loved. You are utterly and completely welcome no matter what. Uh, what I think I have uh, gained, though, um, you know, family is the place for the most important education. But it's not just an education in the facts or it's an education in certain mores, but it's also an enlivening of the imagination. And that, for me, was the single greatest thing that my mother did. She expanded our imaginations to create a, an, an openness. Uh, she instilled in us the unwillingness to be fearful just because we didn't understand. Uh, and so for me, I mean, that is, that's the other, I suppose, side of the, of the equation. The imaginative life of my children is extremely, extremely Im important. Uh, the final positive thing, you know, I never had any doubt growing up that my mother and father loved each other utterly and absolutely. And so family was a safe place. There was never any fear of something breaking down between them. Um, my son, he doesn't know a single kid at school that doesn't come from a broken family. And so that dedication, um, our children must never, ever worry that something's going to happen, that this safe place is ever going to turn into anything different from that. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Scott Stevens is ABC's Religion and Ethics online editor and the co-host with Waleed Ali of The Minefield on ABC Radio National. Scott's book, On Contempt, is coming up from Melbourne University Press. Scott will deliver CPX's Richard Johnson lecture on October 28. The title of the lecture is Out of Sight, Attentiveness in a Dismissive Age. And Scott will be looking at ways to subvert dismissiveness and infuse your world with sprinklings of grace perhaps more than sprinklings. It's going to be fascinating. I think I can promise you that. Details of the lecture and how to purchase tickets are on our site, publicchristianity.org. I really hope you'll join us for that event. We'll have a Q&A with Scott after his talk with an opportunity to participate in that. Please join us and invite friends you think might appreciate a really thoughtful engagement with a topic that's really relevant for this moment in time. Next week... I think it's very important not to put off expressing how you feel to somebody, um, specifically referring to the expression of love. Tell those people that you love them. Tell those people whom you love that you love them. Don't wait until they're not breathing on the lounge room floor and you have paramedics trying to resuscitate them.